contains grim descriptions of graphic content intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Oh, yeah. Two halves of the same dumbass. <laughs> we definitely are. There's no denying or changing it, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I guess, for or us. Or fortunately. Because I love being the other half of your dumbass, personally. <laughs> But hey, you guys, we hope you're having a good day and a good week. And a good life. <laughs> Shit, I'm sorry. I ran, I ran out of breath. My bad. We always hope that you're doing the best that you possibly can. Also, if this is your first time listening to our show, we're then- sorry. We're definitely sorry, but like also, hi, hello, and welcome, like double, triple welcome, because we appreciate you tuning in, and if you like what you hear from us, we would greatly appreciate if you left us a good review or a good rating. It's a simple yet effective way to support the show, and we would greatly appreciate that. And no, I promise, we're not trying to beg for stars, (laughs) loiter for stars, not trying to do that, but you know, yeah. And we receive two new patrons. Two more Gorgoats. Yay. Yes. (laughs) Aaron and Aaron. Yay. Welcome to the Gorgoats. Thank you very much. It's much appreciated. And now the next thing that we're going to address before we go any further. (laughs) And we are so sorry to say this. So let's give you the rundown. Okay. Because we need to talk more about, I guess, our situation at hand. Like maybe it's good to communicate. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, communicate that to you. Holy shit. I we can't are even so talk. stressed out right we now. We are so stressed out right now. So usually we record the podcast over at my house, but we have switched our equipment to Ray's house because her room is significantly bigger than mine. And we actually have like a little corner and like a little space and it's we're like building. A pod lab. Yeah, we're building a pod lab and like literally. <laughs> literally we are recording this on the same day that we upload it which is something we usually don't do because i swear to you every single time (laughs) that we have sat down at this desk and hit record like i mean the minute we hit the button either a train starts screaming Dogs start barking in the neighborhood <laughs> in different places. Cats it, start meowing. Cats start meowing, or my dog starts whining, or they're, they're, <laughs> it has it has been nonstop. <laughs> it's and, literally at this point, it is so comical because like the location is perfect. You know, we the setup even, is really nice. Yeah, and you know, we did have to hang a few very thick curtains. <laughs> for echo but long story short you guys long story short we're experimenting and we're building a little studio like we're looking into soundproofing and using acoustic foam or whatever it may be we kind of don't know what we're doing in that regard but we're going to be building our station as time goes on so just please if you hear a train (laughs) screaming or a (laughs) there's the dog right there oh my goodness (laughs) 
If you hear any background noise, we are terribly sorry. Just bear with us. We are building the Gore Report station slowly but surely. But my goodness, has it been an adventure? Like, because it was literally fine. It was fine. We sat down and we were like, okay, let's do this. The minute I hit record, the train. Right. The train and the dogs. It's like, are you. The train seemed to go on for like an entire hour. Literally. It would, like, the horn would blow and you would hear hear it because I, I'm not that far from like train tracks right and right. that's a you know it is an active train track it's not like it's just sitting there but it oh is my. absolutely it's our we patience were, has been tested <laughs> we were up until like three o'clock in the morning just waiting for the opportunity to jump on and literally every single time every time <laughs> it's like it's like you said honestly all we can do is laugh about it but yeah we, we won't stay on that tangent for too long that's just a little a little banter <sighs> but if you do hear any background disturbance we are very sorry we are very sorry we are trying to keep that at a minimum okay so today is not only a request but it is also technically like our first true crime unsolved case oh wow okay and this case is so important it deserves all the awareness and all the recognition when this case was requested and I was informed about it, I immediately knew that this was going to be my next case because the families affected by this still have no answers and no justice after 30 plus years. Oh man, that is, that's excruciatingly sad. And the known suspect is still free and walking around to this day. So my goodness, what have you signed me up for? I already don't like it. Today, we will be talking about Australia's longest unsolved serial killer case that you've probably never heard of because there has been little to no coverage regarding this story, or at least here in America, there has not been. And the small amount of information available to us here in the U.S., let's just say I wish I had a VPN. (laughs) Right, right. And this is not like a setup for an ad or anything like that. Like, no, seriously. I Nord VPN. <laughs> I ran into so many distribution rights issues to where they would only show it in Australia. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So I did run into a lot of roadblocks with this one. But within a five-month period of time, three Aboriginal children were senselessly murdered and the killer continues to walk free. Goodness fucking gracious. So Sarah, hello Sarah. Um, She's one of our listeners from Australia and she wrote us an email and she was telling us a little bit about Bowerville, like how much the story has affected her and she requested that we look into it. She also provided some really good sources to look into. Oh, nice. But again, I ran into a lot of distribution problems. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, still, hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for your email. And she wrote, quote, I really appreciate you guys covering this case. It means a lot. This case affects me as an indigenous person living in Australia, having an aboriginal mother and a white father. I have seen and experienced both sides of the coin. And racism is still very prevalent in this country. Racism in the justice system in particular is an epidemic. And there has been an astonishing amount of indigenous deaths in custody and a lot of criminal cases that are treated with a stigma. 
end quote. Wow. Wow. So thank you so much, Sarah, for bringing this to our attention and telling your wife that we said hello. Oh, yes. Hello to both of you. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to cry. They're the couple that like literally said they listen to us every night, like during their routine and stuff. Oh, oh my goodness. I remember. It's going to make me cry. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you for sending this to me because the awareness that I have gotten from this case is just... (sighs) Well, I will go ahead and say that I know nothing about Bowerville. I've honestly, I don't even think heard of it. So I'm going in blind. So that's about all I'm going to say for right now. My heart is already splitting and I don't, I don't like it. Can't say that I like it. Before we dive in, I would like to give a few warnings. We will be discussing sensitive topics of racism, substance abuse, sexual assault, domestic abuse, and the murder of children. So if you feel this may be too much for you, please feel free to skip this one out. In my research, I have had to literally step away to take mental health breaks because I have had my blood pressure break through the roof. (laughs) I have cried. I have cussed and even wanted to throw my phone through the TV. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So because of this story and the history that I've included is just... It is going to be very, very rough, you guys. My goodness. Okay. Oh, here we go. Also, to our Aboriginal listeners, the following episode will contain names and stories of the deceased, and photos of the victims will be included on our social media for awareness as well. There will be no audio today. Since the story comes from Australia and the Aboriginal community has cultural beliefs surrounding this, I'm doing my very best to make things as comfortable as I can for them, especially since this is such a sore topic for those who have not been given closure or justice. Right, right. So. Very well said, my friend. Yes, my chest kind of got heavy. Oh. I'm so sorry, my friends. I am so sorry to do this to you, but we must move forward. (laughs) No. Bowerville is a small country town in New South Wales, Australia, that was nestled in the Nambuka Valley. And according to Wikipedia, the town is known for tourism with attractions such as folk museums, a war museum, a historic theater from the 1940s, and other like historical buildings despite the struggles of low-income areas and high unemployment rates. That's according to Wikipedia. Gotcha, gotcha. It's a little over 300 miles from Sydney, and according to the census at the time of the murders, there were around 1,100 people that lived there, and roughly 350 of them were indigenous. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm going to give a brief little history lesson here, and do please forgive me if I butcher this, but the indigenous Gumbangir people are the traditional owners of the Nambuka Valley and the land surrounding it. They lived there for thousands of years until it was colonized after first contact was made from Europeans around March of 1841. As is the case in many colonization events around the world, Australia has a very long and very traumatic history regarding how the indigenous peoples were treated. And through the years that followed, that trauma would continue to be perpetuated even to this day. Oh, man, that is so sad. 
So, absolutely no disrespect. I am going to try to briefly summarize like a bit of the history to give you an idea of, I guess, the social climate there. Gotcha, gotcha. But the Aboriginal peoples have suffered attempts of genocide. They have had their children taken from them. Those children were subsequently stripped of their culture and their identities. Aboriginal men were marched from their homes in neck chains to, like, prisons and concentration camps. Oh, my God. And I even saw online that the neck chains were used well up until the 1960s and only used on Aboriginal people. Holy shit. They were subjected to slavery, uh, as were the Aboriginal women who were forced into slavery. They were domestic servants and so many more whores that were inhumane and cruel. I unfortunately can't go into full detail about the atrocities, but for the sake of awareness, I will include some recommendations in the show notes if you're looking to educate yourself on this like particular topic but because those were all things that I had absolutely no clue about and I was utterly horrified because our education system here in the U.S. is trash and they don't teach you real history (laughs) okay that's enough tea anyway (laughs) so Bowerville was a timber town back in like the 1870s and it grew quickly to accommodate like all the workers their families and the people that had either come seeking jobs or were like traveling through gotcha and there were two major hotels a post office several general stores a school and a couple of churches but when the timber industry started to fail the town became stagnant until like the 1980s and it was around this time that the old-time charm of Bowerville's Main Street called High Street began to bring in tourists from, like, the surrounding cities. But what these tourists wouldn't see during their visit is the other Bowerville, which was on, like, the southern edge of town. The Mission, which is nicknamed the Mish, is where a lot of the indigenous population lived, and the Mission was located between the town's cemetery, a piggery, and the dump. There was a singular road named Cemetery Road where you would see like a row of lined up simple houses on one side, and the other side of this road, there was a large park where neighbors would get together and they would like, you know, just have a good time. They'd let their kids play, hang out with friends, things like that, so... The parents preferred their children to play in the park across the road rather than the kids going up to High Street because they had fears of their children being targeted and harassed or worse by non-Indigenous people. Gotcha. Which is, like, that is a very wild fear to have, but valid. It it absolutely breaks my heart, honestly, because no one should have to deal with that. No one should have to, like, look over their shoulder in order to live, you know? I just, oh man, just the tone of this episode already is just so excruciating to me. Much like a lot of other small towns in the area, Bowerville faced racial tension and segregation between the indigenous and white residents. And the racism had gotten so bad that in 1965, the town was specifically targeted by a bus tour that was called the Freedom Ride. And that was led by a renowned activist named Charles Perkins. There was like a group of 
29 university students from like the University of Sydney, mm-hmm. but they traveled through rural. There's that word again. Hey, you actually said it really R- nice. R- though. Rural. Rural. R- I don't even know how I said it the first time, but anyway. Um, so rural. <laughs> New South Wales collecting evidence of segregation and racism. And they specifically came to Bowerville to protest the blatant discrimination and segregation of the Aboriginal people. Charles Perkins, being an Aboriginal himself, nearly started a race riot when he went to the movie theater on High Street and went to purchase a ticket at the front booth. So apparently, like, this was not allowed. Wow. Holy shit, man. If you were Aboriginal, you had to, like, go around the back of the theater to purchase your ticket from a side entrance. And when you got your ticket, you would have to walk up these very steep steps. And you were only allowed to sit on these hard, wooden, fold-up chairs or, like, lay on the cold, hard floor. (sighs) At the very front of the room in the neck break section. I, I honestly just hardly know what to say. Like, truly, I don't want to say, oh, my God, like a hundred times. <laughs> I'm trying to get better about that. But, yeah, I just don't know what to say. This is just... It's shocking. It's cruel. It is so horrible. Like, just thinking about racism in any sense and knowing that it's still a thing today is so sad and disappointing and just... I don't even know. That just That's a weight on my soul. A genuine weight on my soul. And my heart breaks for these people. It's, ugh, it only gets worse. I'm sorry. Fuck. So the theater, you know when you go to the movies and the room is full, that only the very front seats were available because everyone else got the good seats in the back? Right. Well, this was an all-the-time occurrence for Aboriginals. Like, they literally had the seats cordoned off to distinguish what seats were for white people only. My God, man. So now I'm going to briefly touch on what segregation was like in Bowerville, like to give you some insight on the bullshit. Um, There were two pubs in town. One was the top pub for the white business owners and the bottom pub for the hardworking white farmers. But the bottom pub is where the aboriginal men were also allowed to drink. But they were only served from the back window and never from a glass. (sighs) What the hell? Like, like they, what the they hell? They didn't want the glasses to be contaminated. This is a fucking insane. Like, this is truly fucking insane. You know, God forbid that a white person has to drink from that same glass. Oh, my but God. The Aboriginal men would only drink usually on Fridays and Saturdays because they were very hardworking men. They worked the timber mills and the banana plantations, so they didn't drink throughout the week. And if the police saw Aboriginal men just standing around on High Street, they would either aggressively command them to go home or they would lock them up. Yeah. Jesus. So the white children and the aboriginal children were taught separately at St. Mary's. And when Anne Edwards, a traditional Goombangir owner and proud aboriginal woman, went to school at St. Mary's, she said, quote, It had these great big buildings for the white children with a large playground and a church. On the other side of a petitioned fence was a little shed. And this was the schoolroom for the aboriginal children. We were not allowed to be friends with the white children, not even allowed to to speak to them, end quote. 
Holy fuck. Yeah. The Aboriginal people weren't treated in the hospital at all. They were assigned to a very small room off the side of the building that only had one singular bed. And if I'm not mistaken, I read somewhere that this bed was only used for kids. So the Aboriginal women weren't allowed to give birth in the hospital. And Ann Edwards said, quote, The women who were having babies had to walk over the mountains to Bellingen Hospital, which accepted Aboriginal people 50 kilometers away, end quote. Holy shit. That's 31 miles away. These people had to walk 31 miles to be seen at a hospital. Pregnant, going to the hospital to give birth to their children. I am fucking speechless. Like, this is sad is not even the word for this. So Holy shit. As you can see, the Aboriginal people were done extremely fucking dirty for absolutely no reason other than being people of color, like people of culture and not being white. That is, it's... Oh, my God. I'm not going to keep saying the same things over and over again. My (laughs) heart is just breaking like this is so savage. So there is a reason why I've um, I've lined all this out and I'll get to that. But by 1990, which is the era of today's case, things had only changed a little bit. The seating in the theater was still segregated. There were still two pubs in town, but it was also segregated. One pub was for whites and one pub was for indigenous. At the stores on High Street, white people would be served first, even if they were the last person in line. The racism in the community was still very noticeable, and even to this very day, racism is still alive and well there, apparently. Although... Everyone seems to kind of like turn a blind eye to it, especially seen in this case. My God, like, come on, humanity. Like, it's like I I said a few minutes ago, like the fact that this is even still a fucking thing. Like, what the fuck, y'all? What the fuck? It's shit like this that literally just steals my hope away for everything. I know. It's... It's pretty fucked up. Like, it's very fucked up. So now that we have some background on the location, the population, and the enraging racial issue, now we are getting into the particulars of what happened. 16-year-old Colleen Ann Walker Craig was born on July 26, 1974. She was the second oldest of six children, and she was a huge help to her mom, Muriel, as she helped tremendously around the house taking care of her younger siblings, especially her younger brother, because he was disabled and he had special needs. Oh, my goodness. So, Colleen, she's described by her loved ones as being a vibrant, well-liked, beautiful individual who showed promise. She was a positive person who basically got along with everyone, and she was pretty popular. She had a lot of friends. She sounds like a wonderful soul. Colleen was also infamous for her practical jokes, particularly her jump scares. (laughs) I love that. Oh my goodness. So she had a sense of humor too. She did. Um, She also had a very strong moral compass. And by that, I mean, she had no issues telling you if she thought something you did or said was wrong. Again, she just sounds like the purest spirit, honestly. Like, that's somebody that I think we all would like to have in our life. It really, like, it really made me smile learning about these three kids' lives because it's like, they were so beautiful. 
Oh man! Oh god! Boy. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna get cry. emotional. I'm gonna get emotional. Okay, you're gonna make me cry. Ready? I don't even know what the fuck is coming, and you're gonna make me cry. We're I don't mo- know. We're moving on. We're moving on. So she absolutely loved kids and decided that she wanted to be a teacher, specifically a pre-primary teacher or like a preschool teacher. Mm-hmm. Before her disappearance, she already had work experience and a certificate from the hard work she put in to make her dream like become a reality. So she originally lived in a small town called sawtell with her mom and her siblings but she would travel independently from one small town to the next to visit her family and friends so in september of 1990 colleen gave her mom a hug and a kiss and set out on the 45 minute journey to head to bowerville this is the last time muriel would see colleen Oh, my goodness. And I should also mention that this was not an out-of-the-ordinary trip either. Colleen had been to Bowerville many times before this, and she had family and friends that lived on the mission. Gotcha, gotcha. So the last time Colleen was seen alive was around midnight on September 13th, 1990. She was with a group of friends at a house party on the mission, and she was hanging out with them. They were talking and drinking, and eventually she said her goodbyes. Colleen had planned to leave this party at midnight anyway to catch the train with some friends to head to another town named Wolgulga. I am so sorry. Wolgulga. Very nice. I tried. I don't know if that's correct or not, but it sounded like a you did way better than, than what I would have done. So nobody even knew that she was missing. Nothing seemed off at all. So everything seemed fine until Muriel called one of the friends that was supposed to ride the train with Colleen. And her friend said that when it came time to leave the party to catch the train, Colleen was nowhere to be found. So they unfortunately had to leave without her. Oh, no. So, trying not to panic, Muriel made several phone calls to try to track her daughter down, but the sickening realization kicked in that no one had seen or heard from Colleen since that party. (sighs) So, a quick side note here. Like I said earlier, there is a reason why I laid out all the background on the racism and the segregation in the beginning. So, prepare yourselves now. Because as we move through this story, you will see for yourself the blatant disregard and disrespect toward the victims and their families and toward the Aboriginal people as a whole. Oh my God, my God, my God, my God. On the 17th of September, Muriel took a photo of Colleen with her to the police station in Bowerville to report Colleen is missing. So when she showed Colleen's photo to the authorities... The police actually had the audacity to ask Muriel if she was sure that this was her daughter. Are you fucking kidding me? They commented on how fair-skinned Colleen looked like she was white presenting. They commented on her skin and agreed amongst themselves that Colleen didn't look aboriginal to them. You are fucking kidding me. Completely disregarding the fact that this distraught mother's 16-year-old hasn't been seen or heard from in three days. Like how, oh, I, I'm just, honestly, I'm going to keep my tangent to myself. (laughs) I don't think it'd be fit for this podcast. So we're not even going to go there. I'm just going to keep, keep on keeping on. They told Muriel that Colleen had probably gone walkabout, which I will explain in a moment, or she had probably just gone to another town and that she would turn up eventually. That is some of the most enraging and disgusting shit I have ever heard in my life. And I'm just going to keep it at that. They never took an official statement from Muriel or made any mention whatsoever of filing a missing person report. So being an indigenous woman 
Muriel knew if she made a scene, they would without question arrest her and keep her in custody. Muriel left quietly with the understanding that now it was up to her to try to find her daughter. So she uprooted the whole family and actually moved to Bowerville so she could personally search for Colleen. Chills. Fuck fucking goose legs. I just got goose legs. I got goose legs last week. I just got goose legs again. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. What a badass, incredible woman. But also, my fucking God, this the circumstance of that is so heartbreaking and disgusting and evil, honestly. I'm I'm just still in shock. I'm still in shock. And I mean, I know this is a thing that takes place, unfortunately, in the world. But like me not knowing anything about this specifically, it's just like, fuck. A walkabout is a traditional rite of passage for young Aboriginal males from the ages of 10 to 16 to undergo a journey for a period of time that can take as long as six months to live in the wilderness to make a spiritual connection and a physical transition into manhood. Oh, wow. So once the walkabout was completed, it was only then that they were like seen as men and able to take on like a more responsible role in their community. This journey is very serious and dangerous and it should be respected because these young boys go out and travel on foot for an estimated 1,000 miles. They have to be able to source clean water, fish, hunt, and gather their food while distinguishing what is food and what is poison. They build their own shelters and withstand the elements. They traverse dangerous landscapes, protect themselves from predators, make their own medicines, and like being able to take care of themselves if they're sick or injured. That is absolutely fucking incredible. That is so incredible. They're going through the outback and they're following like their ancestral paths to their destination. I think they were called like song lines. I may be wrong on that, but through this experience, they find themselves and they become men that are in tune spiritually. So there is years of planning and preparation, obviously, that goes into these journeys. Right. And it's not up to the individual or his parents to decide. The elders actually make that decision. Oh, wow. So it's a very sacred practice. I honestly think it's incredibly beautiful, really. So the fact that the police would even bring up the possibility that Colleen could have gone on a walkabout is insulting and ignorant. And I say this because through my research, I learned that young Aboriginal females don't or didn't usually take part in this tradition. Gotcha. It was gotcha. like for the males. So you have these police officers just taking their tradition and their custom and just throwing it in their fucking face basically and just being like baby it's this as if that person isn't i don't know like they that know rubs, anything about it right you know? it, it rubs me the wrong way too it's like i said i will say it again some of the most evil and disgusting shit i have ever heard i cannot even explain to you what that made me feel so in Liz Wakeford's videos on YouTube regarding this case, like she made an excellent point that I wanted to include. Not only that, but like quick shout out because her videos were so informative. I got a lot of information from her videos when there was like a lack of sources to be able to choose from. Right. So right. so Liz Wakeford, if you hear this, I love you. Your videos are awesome. <laughs> I don't know you, but, but I appreciate you. <laughs> 
But um, she basically said that the term walkabout has taken on different meanings to different groups, and it has been used more often than not in a derogatory, discriminatory, and an extremely ill-informed way by non-Indigenous as a means to stereotype the Indigenous with this notion that they are nomads and they are always on the move and they're never in one place for too long. So it's like making an insult out of it. Yeah. Oh my... Oh, I hate people. <laughs> I hate them. But um, back to our case, though, basically nobody took Colleen's disappearance seriously, not even some of the residents on the mission. But three weeks later, just one house down from where Colleen had gone missing, another child disappeared. That soon after? Yes. Oh, my God. So four-year-old Evelyn Clarice Greenup was the oldest child to Rebecca and Billy Greenup. Rebecca's last name was unknown to me. I, I wasn't able to get it. But um, gotcha, she had gotcha. two younger brothers named Aaron and Aiden. And Evelyn and Aiden were especially close and damn near inseparable, being that they were like only a year apart in age. Gotcha, gotcha. Evelyn is described by her loved ones as being a shy, gentle little girl who was always smiling. She was a very happy child that was always wary whenever she was around someone that was unfamiliar to her. Oh, gotcha. So she never went anywhere on her own, and she made it very clear at a very young age that she was not going to be separated from her family. She had a very close connection to her family, and she wanted to be with her family at all times. That makes her vanishing like fucking chilling. She especially enjoyed going on walks, but rest assured through the entire walk, she had to have a tight grip on like her mom or her dad's or her auntie's hand. Oh, my heart. Family members even said that she was such a quiet child that sometimes you'd kind of forget that she was in the room until she would eventually like be tugging on your clothes or whatever, wanting a glass of water. Oh. She was such a shy child, in fact, that a lot of the times... Her younger brother, Aaron, would have to, like, speak for her. Oh, that's so precious, though. You have to order food for me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about it, yeah. I've had to do that several times. But um, she loved playing with her siblings, her cousins, and being out in nature. She was always receiving kind remarks from anyone who met her about her big blue eyes and light brown curly hair, often being called a miniature Shirley Temple. Oh, my my heart is literally breaking. It's been breaking. It's been breaking. On October 3rd, 1990, Evelyn was at her grandmother Patricia's house on the mission. And this was the same residence where her mom and two younger brothers resided as well. So there was a house party that day for like a big event. And this party had started sometime in the afternoon and carried on late into the evening. Apparently, there were a lot of people there. There was a lot of alcohol and some weed. And things had taken a playful but like rowdy turn. There was some sort of argument that happened between Rebecca and Patricia over where the kids should be at this party. So Rebecca took Evelyn, Aaron, and Aiden next door to Billy's house, their father's house, hoping that he would be able to take care of the kids until the party was over, right? Right. However, Rebecca was out of luck because Billy was also pretty heavily intoxicated. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Rebecca returned to Patricia's house with the kids, and she noticed that by the time she got back over there that the party was, like, starting to wind down anyway. So she and the three 
kids went into the bedroom to go lay down. They all slept together in the same bed in one room, which is pretty easy to do when you have three very small children. Right. It's important to note that Rebecca did have a few drinks herself, but she woke the next morning feeling super groggy. She had slept through the entire night, which was extremely out of the ordinary, because usually she would be woken up at least once during the night to make a bottle for her youngest son. But it's the morning of October 4th, and Rebecca woke with a particularly bad hangover, so take note of that. Gotcha. Looking beside her, she saw both of the boys sitting on the bed playing quietly, and Evelyn was nowhere to be seen. Rebecca asked the boys if they had seen Evelyn, and the boys didn't know, so they couldn't really answer her. So she walked out to ask her mom, Patricia, if she had seen Evelyn, and she unfortunately said she hadn't seen Evelyn since they all went to bed. So Rebecca immediately headed over to see Billy to see if he had seen her or if he was watching her, and again, nobody, not even any of the people at the party, had seen Evelyn since that night. This is just nightmare fuel, my God. As Rebecca returned to her mom's house, she saw something on the front lawn, and it was one of Evelyn's tiny pink sandals. Fuck. So before I forget, because I did forget to write this down in my notes, and I meant to bring this up earlier, but I read online that apparently Colleen and Evelyn were cousins, Um, I don't know if that could be something in this case to take note of, but I also can't speak to the validity of the website, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Evelyn's aunt, Michelle Jarrett, she came home about 6 p.m. that night to find her sister, Rebecca, just completely falling apart. The search for Evelyn took all day, and Rebecca's mind is probably racing at this point, trying to figure out what the hell happened and where her daughter could be. So Michelle grabbed a photo of Evelyn and Rebecca, and they headed down to the police station to report Evelyn as missing. As the sisters were heading into the station, they caught an officer's attention as he was leaving the station. So they approached this officer to tell him what was going on, you know, relieved that they managed to catch someone in time. Right. I guess this police station wasn't operating during nighttime hours, but he literally told them, according to Michelle, he said, quote, what do you want me to do about it? I'm the only one here, and I'm about to clock off. You'll have to come back tomorrow, end quote. What the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. It wasn't until days later that the police would even take them seriously about Evelyn's disappearance. And again, as they looked at the photo of Evelyn, they did the same thing to Rebecca that they did to Muriel, Colleen's mom. They asked Rebecca if she was sure this was her child. They saw Evelyn's blue eyes, her fair skin, and light brown hair and made their racist assumptions that this was not Rebecca's daughter because she didn't look aboriginal. (sighs) Then, again, suggested that Evelyn had gone walkabout. A four-year-old. And this is actually where I physically threw my phone. Because, I mean, she's four years old, right? Right. What? Oh, my. Oh, okay. So, alrighty, all right, all right. How, how, how does a four-year-old baby girl go all by herself out into the wilderness to survive harsh elements, dangerous terrain, and a whole catalog of natural predators? 
But it's also an insult to them directly. It's like they're insinuating that they would even allow their child to do that. At four years old. My fucking fuck. This is literally the true definition of lying on the resume and still getting the job. No shit. <laughs> like This is heartbreaking. And I wrote this down in my notes, and I hope that some of you guys can appreciate this, but I was reminded of a quote from the movie The Princess Bride during this. I've never seen that movie. Well, one of the quotes was, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the quote fits. I've never seen the movie, but... So, again, the racism, the disrespect, the ignorance is just... <sighs> Yeah, I honestly, the cruelty of it is just insane. Like, it's truly insane, and it's so heartbreaking. I cannot say it enough. My heart truly breaks for these people. They had no help. None. The police literally had no intention of doing their job whatsoever. They couldn't be bothered to even do anything within their power to find these missing kids. And I honestly agree with everything the families and everyone else who covered this has said that if this had been three white kids that had gone missing, like they would be scrambling to find them. And the outcome of this case would be so different. Right. I agree. And it's fucking awful. So now the police have no excuses left when it comes down to finding Evelyn because they couldn't just write off a four-year-old as easily as they could 16-year-old Colleen. Right, right. So the report was made and they actually had to do their jobs and conduct an investigation. It must be so hard for them. I'm saying, man, God damn. So this resulted in a few searches, but they quickly lost interest again because a witness claimed they had allegedly seen Evelyn at the candy store on High Street the morning after she supposedly disappeared. I'll get more into that witness statement later, but this caused the police to then turn on Rebecca and the rest of the family, questioning them about Evelyn's disappearance like they had anything to do with it, like they were involved. I just, I don't understand. I genuinely don't fucking understand. So they were suggesting that they knew what happened to Evelyn and they were the ones responsible. And it was now left up to the family to find Evelyn themselves. So they were holding their own searches. They were handing out flyers to all the shops in town to display in their shop's windows. Like the police's efforts literally fizzled out. And it's not like it was only due to lack of leads. No, the the motive there is entirely different, it's, clearly. It's really clear, like, why they have no interest whatsoever. So, that's downright disgusting, and, uh, wow. A little bit more than enraging. These people should, like, really be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> like, if they're still alive today, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, saying that's not even the word for it, but... Four months later, on January 31st, 1991, another child went missing from the mission. 16-year-old Clinton Thomas Speedy Duroux, affectionately called Bubby by his loved ones, was described by his family as being a really kind and gentle individual that was caring to everyone around him and just possessing this big, beautiful heart. Oh. He was able to cheer up anyone with his silly sense of humor 
And he was just a beautiful soul who kids were naturally drawn to because he was always seen with a baby on his hip or pushing a stroller around with a trail of little kids following him around. I'm gonna cry. What? He sounds like he was just so full of life and compassion and love. His father, Thomas, said that Clinton would have been a wonderful dad and he wishes that he would have been able to have the chance to see him grow and have his own family one day. Clinton loved football and he was a talented player who would run his heart out. Um, He was also a talented artist. He absolutely loved Michael Jackson and had mastered all of the signature dance moves that Michael did. Um, According to his family, he could definitely burn up a dance floor. (laughs) so he seems just like the life of the party really right right that's what that's the vibe that i'm getting clinton was originally from a small town named tenterfield where he lived with june speedy his mother but he moved to bowerville because he wanted to be with his dad who lived just a few houses down from where colleen and evelyn disappeared so clinton's auntie heard of the disappearances at the mission and warned clinton to be careful before his journey to bowerville because the person responsible had still not been stopped. So Clinton did his best in his caring nature to reassure her that things would be fine. His older brother Marbuck even made Clinton promise to come home to celebrate his 18th birthday coming up. Oh, But unfortunately, Clinton would never attend. So when Clinton got to Bowerville, it didn't take long at all for him to make friends and feel at home there. He even found himself in a romantic relationship that quickly became very serious with a girl named Kelly Jarrett, who was actually a very close friend of Colleen. And Clinton and Kelly became inseparable. So on the night of January 31st, the couple attended a party at a public housing complex that, from what I understand, was either not far from the mission or it wasn't far from where Evelyn and Colleen disappeared. Gotcha, gotcha. And this party was quite similar to the other parties that were recently thrown, as there were a lot of people there, a lot of alcohol, and a lot of weed. So Clinton and Kelly, they were just enjoying themselves and having fun. I should also mention that at this point, Colleen had been missing for five months and Evelyn for four months. And this is also around the same time that people at the mission began to connect the dots and suspect that the two disappearances were actually connected. So at this party, one of the men at the party approached Kelly and invited her back to his caravan, which is basically an RV, to watch some music videos and have a few more drinks. Mm -hmm. Kelly agreed, but only under the condition that Clinton could come as well. Personally, this gives me the ick because it's pretty obvious that this individual has his eyes on Kelly with other intentions in mind. Right, right. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, if you and I were at a party and got separated somehow and a guy approaches me and invites me to his place that night for more drinks, um, he's doing that because, one, he sees me alone, he has no clue you're with me, and two... He has intentions of getting me more drunk at his place for a reason. And it's not to just hang out and be buddies. <laughs> or watch music videos. Or watch fuck. music videos. <laughs> and then another layer of this that gives me even bigger ick is the fact that this is a teenage girl being approached by a grown man. 
Yeah, that definitely is triple ick, really. Quadruple. I don't know what comes after that, but whatever term comes after that, yes, that. That. <laughs> so the man seemed to have absolutely no issues with this, and the three of them went back to this guy's caravan, not far from the mission, at around 3 a.m. And once there, Kelly had a few drinks, Clinton laid down on the bed, and they all hung out and watched music videos. But the next morning, Kelly woke up around 8 a.m. feeling very rough and very drowsy because she slept particularly heavy that night. Once again, take note of that. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Noted. But, But the surprising thing was she realized that she was alone, like Clinton and this man were gone. She looked around and noticed Clinton's shoes sitting where he had left them the night before. So she grabbed the shoes and immediately ran to Tom's house, Clinton's dad. And the minute he saw Kelly holding Clinton's shoes, there was no explanation needed. He knew something had happened to his son. Oh, man. So the significance with the shoes. Um, Clinton was known for taking pride in his appearance, and he was very fashionable when it came to what he was wearing. He was always wearing the latest fashion or the greatest brands, and he was very particular about these shoes. The Reeboks that Clinton wore to the party that night, the same shoes Kelly had in her hands, were the shoes Clinton had been given as a Christmas present from his dad. They were extremely sentimental to Clinton, and since that Christmas day, when he received them, he basically never took these shoes off. Um, His family had a running joke about saying that the only time that he took these shoes off was when he was sleeping or when he was showering. (laughs) That is pretty funny, but also it does add to the chilling factor because that obviously means these aren't just some shoes that he would just leave willy-nilly you know what i'm saying so so there kelly is standing with tom with clinton's shoes my heart man i just goodness so tom called the police to report clinton as a missing person and yet again the police acted completely indifferent and unconcerned The significance of Clinton's shoes went completely over their heads, it seems, and if you guessed that they were about to use the walkabout card, you would guess correctly. Are you serious? Yeah. Uh, They (sighs) then told Tom that he'd have to wait 24 hours before he could file a missing person report. Tom spent the entire day searching Bowerville for his son and talking to people who attended this party, and he was told the same thing by everyone he talked to that Clinton and Kelly left the party together to go to this man's caravan. The next day, when Tom called the police, he was told yet again that he wasn't able to file a report. Tom kept calling the police and continued to call, and now the indigenous community really began to put pressure on the police because this is the third child that has come up missing in five months and nothing is being done about it. I just don't understand. Like, my mind is just, I'm fucking blown. Like, not blown as in shocked because this kind of thing, unfortunately, is very real and it happens. I I just don't know. I didn't know anything specifically, like, about this case at all. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking and it's agonizing to hear how these people were treated. Like, to have not one, not two, but three children go missing from your community in such a short span of time. Only to have 
nothing done about it. But on top of that, they're going to take the police are going to take chances to like insult you and use your culture and your traditions to insult you. Like I just this is fucking nightmare fuel. I don't know what else to say. So in their response, they sent one singular police officer to assist Tom in the search for Clinton. One One officer. One. One. Just one. I'm going to keep my two cents for this specific part. I'm just going to keep it to myself. Some things are better left unsaid on this podcast. (laughs) So the man that owned the caravan was 28-year-old Jay Hart, who was a white, non-indigenous resident and local laborer of Bowerville. He worked at a tanning factory, hanging hides for a living, and he lived in his caravan on his mother's property. And I also uh, may have seen something where he has his mother wash his clothes for him. A grown-ass man. So. Oh, all right. All right, Jay. (laughs) Um, His mother, Marlene Hart, lived in her own house on the property with her boyfriend, Noel Short. And this property was located between High Street and the Mission. Although he was not indigenous, Jay didn't have any friends on High Street. Instead, he was accepted by the indigenous community and welcomed on the Mission, where he would regularly attend parties, bringing with him a surplus of alcohol and marijuana. He was nicknamed the King, and it's believed he was called this due to his large, stocky build. He was quite popular on the mission, and he got along pretty well with most. However, his red flags were definitely visible to others. They couldn't help but notice that Jay had a weirdo-type interest in the indigenous women living there, especially so when it came to much younger women or underage girls. Jesus. It was no secret that he was freely supplying these young women with booze and weed that they couldn't readily purchase themselves in what appeared to be a very calculated move to win their affection. You don't say. He was also known to become very violent and aggressive any time that he got too drunk or stoned. Then you probably shouldn't be getting drunk or stoned, my guy. It's probably not for you. Yeah, I definitely don't think so. And on several occasions, he was even asked to go home. Another interesting piece of information, he used to live on the mission in his past. He was in a four-year relationship with Colleen's aunt, Allison Walker, and they had a son together. Oh, shit. So he has, like, real connections. Mm Mm-hmm. Their relationship ended due to allegations of physical abuse by Jay. Allison said that Jay punched her in the face while she was seven and a half months pregnant. What the fuck? But this, to me, like, in my personal opinion, this also sounds like it might be somewhat motive, you know? I just, I don't know if anything, it's definitely showing some of his fucking character. Definitely. Like, my um, God. There was another incident in April of 1990, and keep in mind, this is just a few months before Colleen vanished. Jay was involved in an argument with a couple that lived on the mission, and Jay headbutted the woman in the face punched the man in the face he left came back with a fucking golf club that he used in his attempt to break down their front door the whole time threatening to bury them under his marijuana plantation what right the fuck right so again just building character um 
This next incident was submitted to us by Sarah in her email, and she included this when she was telling me about the case. She said, quote, One fact that is little known, and I only know of because I have dug deep into the case, is that Jay Hart grew marijuana crops in the area with an aboriginal man in the community. After an altercation between the two, the man was discovered dead by an apparent suicide hanging near the marijuana crops. Holy shit! It is suspected that Jay caused this man's death, but the cops didn't look into it and immediately dismissed it as a suicide, end quote. Of course they did. What the hell is going on in this story? Like, what? I am, like, fucking bird-boxing it <laughs> right now so hard. Jay was interviewed on February 4th, 1991, five days after Clinton's disappearance. When interviewed, Jay claims that when his alarm went off for work the morning after the party, which was around 5.15 to 5.30 in the morning, he was still drunk when he hit the snooze button and rolled over to go back to sleep. But he claims that he wasn't fully asleep when he heard someone, presumed to be Clinton, get up and leave the caravan. All right. Keep in mind that they they left the party that they were at and went to the caravan at 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. So that is a two-hour window not being accounted for. Yeah, I don't like that. So Jay allowed police access to the caravan. Don't be surprised when I tell you that the police went into the caravan, looked around for a bit until they were satisfied, and left. Doing absolutely nothing. No forensic walkthrough was conducted. They concluded that if Clinton was a victim of foul play, it must have happened after he left the caravan, but before Kelly woke up. Conveniently. The other thing that steered the police away from Jay was an alleged report that a witness saw Clinton walking down the road, hitchhiking out of town the morning he was supposed to be missing. Again, I'll get into the witnesses later, but... That I just don't understand, because they're saying that this child left without his shoes... To go hitchhiking right. out of town without like, fucking like shoes. Anyone outside of law enforcement could be like, mm, that don't sound right. So like. Like his shoes were maybe. literally left behind. How are you going to go hitchhiking and, and walk down the road if you don't have fucking shoes on? Maybe don't be in law enforcement if you don't have common sense. <laughs> like, I mean, this. I don't so, know what to make. This is one hell of a story. One hell of a story. So frustrated and upset at the lack of action put forth and the blatant indifference being shown toward finding their children, members of the Aboriginal community gathered outside the New South Wales Bowerville Police Station to protest. And from here on out, instead of saying New South Wales, I'm just going to say NSW. Gotcha. Um, but gotcha. So that way you guys know what I'm talking about. But this demonstration brought out the senior inspector on duty that day, and his name is Bob Moore. And he told them, quote, to do this investigation properly, we've got to have you people on side working with us, end quote. You people. Like what? Okay, first off, what investigation? Like they've done absolutely nothing to help these families or progress in any way towards finding Colleen, Evelyn, or Clinton. Also, like you picked up, the you people remark. Now that is a microaggression that is used against a different race that implies that they are second-class citizens. 
automatically stereotyping them as troublemakers who live in dangerous neighborhoods and sending the message that they don't belong or they're inferior to white citizens. So if anyone didn't understand why the term you people is offensive to others, I hope I explained that well enough so we can all understand collectively why that phrasing is damaging, derogatory, and, and racist. And definitely fucking racist. Like, like it's my God. Bad. It's fucking bad. And like, the minute you said that, like, my asshole fell out of this chair. Like, he it really did. said that to an entire, like, group of people. A grieving group of people exactly. desperate to find their fucking children. Exactly. She get fucked. Like, that, that's my response right now. Get fucked. To make matters worse, another officer came out and assured the demonstrators that if they had the evidence to arrest and charge someone for this, they would be charged. Exactly. I just don't understand. I don't understand that. I know. So they've sat on this with their thumbs up their asses, expecting the evidence to just magically appear before them, already collected and filed so they can now do their job, instead of, oh, I don't know, actually doing their fucking job? It's now becoming apparent to the police that the families of these three missing children weren't just going to throw up their hands and forget the whole thing. Like, they were not going to be silent, and if they didn't do something... They expected the families or the Aborigines as a whole to start a riot, again with the stereotypes. Um, so they brought in some detectives from the North Region's Major Crime Squad, as well as other detectives from Coffs Harbor to investigate the disappearances of all three children. One of these detectives was Sergeant Allen Williams, and Detective Williams was not a homicide detective. So why the fuck do they... Oh, my God. He had absolutely no experience in homicide because he was actually in the child protection department. Yeah. He was in the child protection department of the child mistreatment unit in Coffs Harbor. So it's widely speculated that he was only brought in to give the appearance that the authorities were finally going to do something... And it's also speculated that since Coffs Harbor wasn't far from Bowerville, there was no major cost to bring this detective in. Also, it should be mentioned that no one wanted to cover the case. And the police still weren't even concerned in the slightest that indigenous children were being targeted. So still, nothing was actually being done at this point. And to make matters worse... Detective Williams was brought to Bowerville under instructions to look into the families because the police still believed that the families were responsible or at least took part in their children disappearing. One of the assumptions that police had was that Evelyn's mom, Rebecca, was a heavy drinker and was going to be approached by children's services anyway, and that Rebecca removed Evelyn from the house and hid her somewhere to prevent her daughter from being taken. I should also mention that the families had no idea they were being surveillanced until it came out decades later. What the fuck? Years later, Detective Williams said that it was his belief that his superiors had played their part or had basically ruined the chance of this case being solved, as he had zero chances of solving the murders. So on February 18th, 1991... Two men were in the bushlands not far from the mission on the eastern outskirts of Bowerville. They were searching for firewood 
when they discovered Clinton's remains just seven kilometers from the mission, which no. is about four miles. No, no. I should also mention that Jay Hart's marijuana plantation was not far from where Clinton's remains were found. By this point, Clinton had been missing for a little over two weeks. His body was dumped alongside Congarini Road, and no attempt was made to bury him. He his, was just dumped on the fucking road. Yeah, his his body was left out in the heat and the humidity purposefully, and as a result, Clinton's body was badly decomposed. He was still wearing the same clothes he was last seen in, minus his shoes. Oh my God, oh my God. There was also a blanket nearby, and it was presumably wrapped around Clinton's body before wild animals had begun to scavenge off of his remains. There was a deep, clearly visible wound on Clinton's head, and there was a pillowcase shoved down the front of Clinton's shorts. And when this pillowcase was removed and inspected, one of the officers identified that the pillowcase and the blanket matched items that he had seen inside Jay Hart's caravan. You are fucking kidding me. An autopsy revealed that his jaw had been broken and he was stabbed multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. My asshole. Gone. Gone. And you, like, and I know I won't go too hard on it. I'm just like, I'm freaking out right now. And you said in the beginning of this case that this man was still free mm -hmm. and walking around. Mm -hmm. And they have evidence like this. Yes. Done. Just, just I'm done. Just wait till you like hear essentially how he escaped from being pinned with it, basically. Oh my god. I know that's probably not like the best wordage to use. I am trying to be sensitive here, but like that's he he essentially got away with this. Like I said, I'm I'm done and I'm fucking blown. It took the police 10 days after Clinton's remains were discovered for them to return to Jay's caravan. 10 days. The police told him they needed to take the caravan for forensic testing, also because they claimed the aboriginals might trash it since word was spreading around town that he had something to do with Clinton's murder. They also asked Jay why one of his pillowcases would be shoved down the front of Clinton's shorts, and Jay suggested that maybe Clinton got up early that morning and stole the pillowcase to use it to steal marijuana from his plantation on Congarini Road. Fuck you, guy. How about that? How about a big old fucking fuck you? It's absurd. Stealing weed at 6 a.m. with a pillowcase and no shoes on and leaving his girlfriend behind. This does not make sense. Clearly. I just don't even know what to say. Like, I'm I'm honestly physically holding my shit together. Physically holding my shit together. Here's some more A1 police work for you. Before the police took the caravan for testing, they asked Jay if he needed anything from inside. Which, what? Which, I mean, okay, yeah, he does live there, you know, but, like, they allowed him to go back inside unsupervised. And it's like you're allowing the suspect time to possibly, like, destroy Prepare evidence. and go into a fucking crime scene like, and move shit and touch shit? If, like, are you fucking kidding me? If there was blood, because they didn't have the, um, they didn't have the technology then to be able to tell if blood had been there after it had been wiped away, right? So he could be wiping blood away. 
And instead of grabbing something you'd expect, like a wallet and keys or clothes or whatever until he got his home back, the only thing he wanted was his dumbbells. He wanted his weights. I wonder why. And the police were like, oh, oh okay, fuck yeah, bro, gains. Like, seriously? <sighs> seriously. Clinton died from head trauma. Later, forensic testing confirmed that the trauma Clinton suffered to his head could have very well been caused by these weights because his wounds were consistent with that conclusion. How in the f- uh, Hold on. Ooh. The weights were never examined, tested, or used as evidence because they were never seen again. This is quite literally the most- stupidest I've ever seen in my mother life and Jay I literally hope you rot and I'm done done like d-o-n-e done I just had to use our censorship thing because like I literally can't I am fucking blown I just got <laughs> Woo! I was trying Woo! not to laugh at all the beeps but Woo! like yeah Woo-wee. yeah yeah, Woo-wee. so guys. Oh um, my god. Like I I cannot I'm sorry you guys. I am I am teeming with rage. I I, I think I'm having a panic attack right now. <sighs> I genuinely think I'm I'm slick falling off the edge a little bit. So guys, um since we upgraded our mics and everything, we got a new soundboard like I said and I told you guys that we were going to be in trouble, but we figured that you know, even though we do cuss, we, you know, it shouldn't be like excessive or like no, well, you overly know. vulgar. <laughs> like, but, are we in trouble? Yes. But did using that censorship option, like us uploading that without the censorship off option with what I just said, that would have gotten us in trouble. Yeah. Canceled. Canceled. So, <laughs> so, canceled. <laughs> that being said, thank you for the bleeps. But I'm not going to lie, like, you slick. It just pushed me so fucking far over the edge. Like Bitch. I am, I'm, sh- look, I'm shaking. I'm Do literally Do you understand shaking. that I actually physically threw my iPhone across the room? <laughs> I threw my iPhone across the room, bitch. It's believed that Jay disposed of them shortly after he was allowed to take them. So there's that. The blanket found beside Clinton's body was also never examined, tested, or used as evidence. Jay's own mother, Marlene, even admitted to the police in her initial interviews that the blanket matched the blankets that Jay used in his caravan. But despite this admission, the blanket was arranged to be washed, further destroying what could potentially be crucial physical evidence that was absolutely vital to Clinton's case. I'm just going to go ahead and say if I get a little on the quiet side for like this next little however long of episode, I'm just trying to hold it together. Like truly, this is one of the most awful, cruel, sad, heartbreaking fucking things that I and enraging. Let me add that in that I've ever heard in my fucking life. I honestly don't know how to respond in a way that is fit for our podcast that is going to be broadcasted to, like, a lot of people. So, like, I need to chill. And this is the reason why I was definitely, like, hands down, this is the case. Because I can see how it moved you because it's moved me. And we're not even done. Yeah, like, even though it is extremely enraging, like, people need to hear this. I agree. 
I'm really happy. Like, and I'll just go ahead and say, Sarah, thank you so much for requesting this and bringing this to our attention again. I knew nothing about this. This has impacted me in a way that I cannot describe. So much so that if I don't keep my fucking mouth shut, I'm going to get our <laughs> podcast canceled. So <laughs> That part. So the police interviewed Jay for a second time. And when he retold his version of what happened that morning, his story just didn't add up. So Jay was arrested and charged with Clinton's murder on April 8th, 1991. April 17th, 1991, there were two men fishing on the Nambuka River, not far from where Clinton's remains had been found. And it was literally right down the hill from where he had been found. Um, one of their hooks snagged on a belt and a pair of jeans, so they contacted the police, and these items belonged to Colleen. Oh, my God. She had been wearing them the night she disappeared, and by this time, Colleen had been missing for eight months, and her family had been desperately searching for her on their own with absolutely no assistance from the police. So when the police arrived on the scene, they investigated the area and found the rest of Colleen's clothes. Her clothes had been gathered up and put into a plastic bag that was weighed down by rocks. And unfortunately, to this very day, Colleen's body would never be found. And after this discovery, it would take over a decade before a coroner would finally conclude that Colleen was deceased as a result of a homicide. I am trying not to fucking cry. Literally, I'm just gonna, I'm sorry, you guys, I'm just gonna have to be quiet. I can't. Like, I literally fucking can't. April 27th, 1991, 10 days after Colleen's clothes were discovered, a search was conducted by police and state emergency services because locals were alerted to a foul smell in the area. And at around 4 p.m., the skeletal remains of Evelyn Greenup were found in the bushlands just about three kilometers, roughly a mile and a half, from where Clinton's body was found. Like Clinton, there was also no attempt to bury her body, as she too was just dumped alongside Congarini Road. Her cause of death was also due to a penetrative injury to her skull, and next to Evelyn's remains was a pink sandal that matched the one that her mom, Rebecca, found in her front yard the day her daughter disappeared seven months earlier. The surveillance continued on Evelyn's family, and now police were investigating a rumor that Evelyn had been sold by her family. What in the fuck? Yeah. The police interviewed at least one witness regarding this rumor, despite Jay being charged and arrested for Clinton's murder. The police absurdly continued to believe that the three murders weren't connected. They then questioned Evelyn's grandmother, Patricia, about a payment that she received in her bank account, again suggesting that Evelyn had been sold for money. When in reality... This payment Patricia received was her war widow pension from Veteran Affairs because her husband was a Vietnam vet. So faced with the facts that the three victims had all gone missing within a five-month period, two of these victims were murdered in similar ways, and the relatively close distances between the two victims' remains and the clothing of the third victim, the police finally conceded and accepted what the families had been trying to tell them. Their children were murdered by a serial killer that was targeting indigenous children on the mission. With Jay Hart already in custody and awaiting trial for Clinton's murder, 
they now had to connect him to the two other murders, which was not hard to do, I should mention. Uh, considering witnesses confirmed that Jay had not only been to the party that Clinton was at, but he had been to all three parties that each individual victim had been present for. You're fucking kidding me. I'm not. He had been to all three parties. So witnesses told police that they had seen Jay basically pestering Colleen and making advances towards her, trying to convince her to go back to his caravan the night she disappeared. He used the same exact method he used with Clinton and Kelly to get them to the caravan, and he was offering Colleen some more alcohol and music videos. At this time, my guy, you can record your own music videos and shove that VHS tape directly up your ass. That is what I'm screaming. Like, I'm, I just feel so bad because I'm, I'm incapable of responding to this. Like, it's genuinely like that. I, it's taking everything in me just to sit here in this chair, keep my breathing steady, not wig the fuck out and go on a tangent that no one needs or wants to hear. I'm just physically fucking trying to survive this episode. And now you understand why I disappeared for several days. <laughs> I just disappeared. I was like, I cannot. Colleen and a friend of hers had actually taken Jay's offer of free booze and music videos before, back in July of 1990, under the agreement that this offer was purely a non-sexual hangout. Colleen later told her mother Muriel that the arrangement that night was for her and her friend to share the bed while Jay would sleep on the fold-out dining table that transforms into another bed, like a spare bed. Later that evening, Colleen woke up feeling extremely groggy and drowsy to Jay attempting to climb into her side of the bed while groping her and attempting to remove her clothes. Colleen also told Muriel that despite her seemingly drug-like state, she was still able to fight Jay off. And the next morning when the girls woke up, Jay was nowhere to be seen. However, and this is important, so take note of this too, Colleen had to put her shorts back on because at some point while she was sleeping, her shorts had been removed. My fuck. 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 Now, Colleen did end up staying at Jay's caravan on another night after this, but this time she had a male friend with her and nothing suspicious happened that evening. So with all of that happening before the night of her disappearance, Jay was back at it again at this party, like offering Colleen free alcohol back to his place to watch music videos. And as a reminder, she had plans to leave this party and catch a train with some friends. One witness at the party said Colleen was last seen alive at midnight, walking away from a group of friends she was drinking with and hanging out with under a tree, and she was heading down an alleyway on the side of the house. The same witness said at the exact same time that Colleen was walking down this alleyway toward the back of the house, they saw Jay walking down the other side of the house in that same direction, which is also the same direction that his car was parked. So, um, the night that Evelyn disappeared, witnesses also placed Jay at the house party as well. He was there with his generous supply of weed and alcohol, and when the party began to get rowdy and really cranked up, Rebecca took Evelyn and the boys to their bedroom to sleep. Well, Patricia had to ask Jay to leave at 2.30 a.m. 
because she caught Jay outside looking in the windows of her house. And I just still don't understand how all this evidence is there and he is not fucking convicted. I will never understand that. I'm never going to understand that. We're not even finished with this episode and I am already like, why are we? Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. So this was when everyone from the party had gone home already, but he was still there peeking through windows. And Patricia went to bed after she, you know, shooed Jay off or whatever, but she woke up shortly later because she heard Evelyn crying. And Patricia said in an interview that she had never heard Evelyn cry like that before. So she immediately got up to investigate, and when she got to Rebecca's bedroom door, she couldn't open the door. It was locked. So she was outside the door when she heard a thud and Evelyn went quiet. Assuming that Rebecca managed to calm Evelyn back to sleep, she went back to bed. Oh my God. I just, I can't imagine how haunting that is. I just, oh my God. So it's believed that Patricia never told the police about the cries and the thuds she heard, despite being interviewed multiple times mainly because she and many others were distrustful of the police and felt that they wouldn't be believed, and can you blame them? It took a while for the witnesses to come forward, and especially in Evelyn's case, it's kind of good that Patricia didn't mention it to the police because they would have just used that to further their case against Rebecca and this belief that she had anything to do with Evelyn's disappearance. So, you know, they're like, oh, well, Rebecca was in the same room with her, you know, and you hear a cry and a thud. Right. They just they would have excused it all the way and then pinned her for it. Right. Exactly. So Patricia wasn't the only one who saw Jay at the house after the party ended. Fiona Duckett, who was staying at the house after the party, would later testify in court that she got up at 3.30 a.m. to prepare a bottle for her child. And she saw Jay leave the room where Rebecca and her three children were sleeping. He rushed across the room and out the front door, walking so fast that he was almost running, and this made Fiona follow him. By the time she got to the front door and, you know, she was looking out into the front yard, Jay was gone. Like, he was assholes and elbows getting out of this house right um i fucking bet so jay actually returned to patricia's house the next morning to grab his boom box that he left behind and at this point rebecca was already out searching for evelyn but jay told patricia that he had stayed the night on her couch but none of the other people who were sleeping over in patricia's living room none of them remember jay even being there so, obviously, he wasn't in the living room with everyone else. Right, because someone would have remembered him. Someone, at least one person. Now that the police were finally doing something and talking to witnesses, they could now place Jay at all three disappearances. Not only that, but they also believed that they had a firm grasp on what the motives were behind the murders. So... You might have noticed that the women all noted that they were sleeping very heavily, waking up extremely groggy, hungover, or disoriented. Mm-hmm. And if you thought their drinks were drugged, you're not wrong. 
I was on honestly, I was thinking that I wasn't just gonna throw that out just mindlessly, but I definitely had that vibe, like one hundred percent. During their investigation, the police heard multiple stories from indigenous women and girls from the mission about experiences they had in Jay's company, either at a party or at his caravan after the party. So keep in mind that the method does not change. Like he would invite a woman or, you know, like an underage girl back to his caravan, offer alcohol, marijuana, and then the following morning, not only do they wake up disoriented with not a lot of recollection from the night before, but they would also find that their pants had been pulled down at some point during the night with no idea how or why that could have happened. Police were also told that Jay always carried around a medication with him that he supposedly said was for heartburn and indigestion. And it's believed by many, myself included, that these pills were actually a sedative that Jay was using to spike these women's drinks whenever they declined his advances so he could then sexually assault them. Not only did Colleen have this experience at Jay's caravan, but Rebecca also had this experience the morning she woke up to discover Evelyn was missing. When, what the fuck? When Rebecca woke up extremely hungover and groggy, she noticed that her jeans and her underwear had been pulled down all the way to her ankles. Even Kelly, Clinton's girlfriend, made the violating discovery the morning she woke up in Jay's caravan. And it's believed that Kelly had heard rumors of Jay doing this because she specifically asked Clinton not to leave her alone with Jay that night. So when she woke to find both Jay and Clinton gone, she would also find that her shorts and underwear were removed during the night and laying on the floor close to Clinton's shoes. So the police are now aware at this point that they're not only dealing with a serial killer, but a serial sexual predator. So they believe that Colleen was murdered after being sexually assaulted, that Evelyn was murdered because she witnessed or got in the way of her mother's assault, and that Clinton was murdered for potentially trying to protect his girlfriend from her assault. Jesus, fuck, man, fuck. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm breaking. October 16th, 1991. Jay was already behind bars awaiting his trial for Clinton's murder. He was also charged with Evelyn's murder as well. Unfortunately, even though Colleen was presumed to be dead and the police had every reason to believe she had been murdered by Jay, there was no physical evidence to connect Jay to her disappearance. And to this day, they have never found Colleen's body. Without her body, the police felt that a murder conviction wouldn't be attainable. But for now, the victim's families were hopeful that they were finally going to see justice for their children. How could you look at all three cases and not see that they were all connected and carried out by Jay Hart? That's what I'm saying. I just, there is no other way to look at that. I'm sorry. We can, we can argue all day fucking long. I will die on that hill. Thank you very much for tuning into our podcast, everybody. We appreciate you. We love you. (laughs) I will again die on that fucking hill. I am teeming with rage. (laughs) The purest, most powerful form of it. Take a breath, baby. Take a breath. (laughs) Badgery Parker of the NSW Supreme Court apparently did not share that view because on the 25th of August in 1993, he agreed with Jay's defense lawyer's argument that it would be, quote, so seriously and unjustly prejudiced as to make it impossible 
for Jay to get a fair trial if he were tried for both Clinton and Evelyn's murders at the same time, end quote. You're fucking kidding me. According to the NSW Supreme Court, there was no reason for them not to believe that three separate perpetrators could be responsible. How? Exactly. How? So if the jury was presented with everything we've discussed and they heard all the facts from all three murders at the same time, even that jury would tell you how ridiculous it is truly to believe that these three children were murdered by three different perpetrators in the same small country town and the bodies and clothes being found along the same road within short distances of each other. But now the juries from Clinton and Evelyn's trials would not be made aware of the other murders at all. What the f- Oh my- ooh. Th- That's all y'all are going to get for the rest of the episode. Me slightly opening my mouth to let the fucking shit spew and then me reeling it back immediately. That's all we're going to get out of me. I, in fact, I'm clocking out now. Con- <laughs> continue on with what you're doing. I'm just going to sit back in my chair and just try not to fucking shit all over myself. <laughs> Because that is what I'm very close to doing, honestly. I know, I know. It's terrible. It's it's terrible. I wish I could say that... I wish I could say that this ended on a good note. But, like... The families remain hopeful that if Jay was convicted of at least one murder, then surely the others would follow. Jay would be tried for Clinton's murder first because this was the only case that the Crown prosecutor actually had physical evidence to present against Jay. So the trial took place in February of 1994 in Grafton, New South Wales, and the pillowcase found in Clinton's shorts was the Crown's strongest piece of evidence against Jay. And it's my understanding that the blanket that Clinton had been wrapped in was never presented or couldn't be used as evidence because obviously the police grossly mishandled the evidence and had the blanket washed, which is so insane to me. Like, that smells like a cover-up yeah i was about to say that's not a fucking accident they did that shit on fucking purpose you don't just accidentally as a police officer wash a fucking blanket from a homicide scene i'm sorry you I don't could do see that. him like tripping and just like oops and then the blanket going in the washing machine but no absolutely not no um jay took the stand in his own defense the story he gave police about his movements that morning didn't make sense to the police And it didn't make sense on the stand either when he gave his testimony. According to Jay, he fell asleep being very drunk at about 3.30 a.m. in the caravan with Clinton and Kelly. His alarm for work went off just a couple of hours later at 5.15 a.m. because he had work at 6 a.m. at the tanning factory. Now still drunk, he hit the snooze button, but he was still awake enough to hear someone, presumably Clinton, leave the caravan shortly after the alarm went off. At 5.45 a.m., Jay said that he finally got out of bed and left the caravan to go to the house on the property where his mom, Marlene Hart, lived. And he convinced her to give him her car keys because he thought he missed his ride with his co-worker who usually picked him up a few minutes before 6. This doesn't match up at all to what Marlene and her boyfriend Noel told police in their initial interviews. Noel told police that he left work at 4.45 a.m. and noticed that all the lights in the caravan were on. Oh, you don't fucking say. Compared to Jay's testimony, everyone in the caravan was supposed to be asleep at this time. 
Marlene told the police that she would usually leave her keys in her purse at the foot of her bed, so there would be no reason for Jay to wake her up and convince her to give him the car keys when he could have just gotten the keys himself. But in 1994, at the trial, Marlene's story changed. She testified that she kept her keys in her pillowcase under her head as she slept. Like, come on now, who the fuck does that? Really? Like, really? All right. You're really doing that? All right. Jane. I have not met one fucking person in my life that sleeps with their keys under their pillow. Yeah, me neither. Me neither, honestly. So now she was confirming Jay's story about him waking her up at 5.50 a.m. to ask her about the keys. She also changed her story about the blankets Jay used in the caravan. Remember I said earlier that Marlene confirmed that the blanket found at Clinton's remains was matched the, matched the one in the caravan, Exactly. Right. That's what she said in her initial statements. And now she was claiming that the police inserted that part into her statement and she never actually said that. Jay continued to defend himself on the stand, saying that he was stressed about being late for work. So he got into his mom's reddish-orange gallant and began to drive to work. But on his way, he saw his co-worker, the one who supposedly picks him up for work, driving in the direction of the caravan. So he claims that he turned back around and drove back to the caravan to send his friend off to work. But then he chose to stay at the caravan for a cup of tea. Right. So even though he concocted this story and made it clear that he was like super stressed that morning about getting to work on time, he did eventually make it to work at 6.20 a.m. And it was reported that he was still visibly drunk. He was there for a couple of hours before he headed back home to return his mom's car because she had to take her seven-year-old son to school. So at this point, it's around 8.30 a.m. when Kelly awoke to the sound of Jay's voice and found Clinton missing. The Crown pointed out that Jay's testimony directly conflicted with a neighbor's statement to the police. The neighbor had seen Marlene's car, the reddish-orange Gallant, leave the property at 4.50 a.m. and not 6 a.m. Oh. So the Crown accused Jay of spiking Kelly's drink, attempting to sexually assault her. They surmised that Clinton woke up during this attack on his girlfriend, attempting to fight Jay off, and in the struggle that ensued, Jay then murdered Clinton. He then shoved the pillowcase down Clinton's shorts because he had urinated after he died. Jay then took his mom's car keys from her purse at the foot of the bed, loaded Clinton's body into the car, and left the property to dispose of his remains at 4.50 a.m. The Crown then said that at 6 a.m., Jay returned to the caravan after dumping Clinton's body on Congarini Road in his mom's car where he met his co-worker. Instead of Jay supposedly leaving for work at 6, seeing his co-worker and then turning around like a dumbass. Yeah, his whole fucking story makes no sense. Literally makes no fucking sense. So this trial really came down to the witness testimonies. Jay's defense team absolutely dragged Kelly Jarrett because, according to the defense, she was admittedly intoxicated the night Clinton went missing and there was no way to prove that Jay spiked her drink. They did the same to the other witnesses' testimonies from the party as well, saying their accounts of Jay's behavior couldn't be trusted because they were all at a party drinking. Earlier, I mentioned that there was witnesses that claimed to have seen Clinton hitchhiking out of Bowerville the morning after 
like he was supposed to be murdered. Mm-hmm. One witness claimed they had seen Clinton at 4.50 a.m. that morning at a certain spot on the road leading out of town. Another witness testified they saw someone that could have been Clinton, no confirmation that it was actually him, standing at that exact same spot over an hour later at 6.20 a.m. Now, what I did see online was that the the person that they are, you know, saying that's Clinton hitchhiking out of town, mm-hmm. that was somebody else. So there was actually someone there hitchhiking, was, it just wasn't Clinton. There was actually someone on the road walking down the road. But when that person met the family, he told the family, I was the person they thought was Clinton. Wow. Fucking Christ. So Jay Hart pled not guilty at his trial and was acquitted on February 18, 1997, exactly three years to the day since Clinton's remains had been found. And the families were completely devastated. When the verdict was read, the police decided to have the fucking riot squad present in the courtroom, which is not usual protocol. There were so many riot police there that the courtroom was standing room only. Holy fuck. The goose legs. And I think this is just completely disrespectful because, again, they are working under the stereotype that Aborigines are troublemakers and they they can't be in control of themselves. So, like, you know, we got to have riot squad here because it's going to cause a big problem. And, you know, it's just... It's fucking insane. It's fucking insane. The family, however, showed incredible dignity and restraint in how they handled the verdict. Despite being absent for most of the trial, the media was everywhere. June Speedy, Clinton's mother, came out of that trial in shock, only to have cameras and microphones shoved in the family's faces and being asked, do you think you will ever get over it? There was no media liaison for the family either, and the media ended up getting a statement from Troy Clinton's youngest brother, who was 16 at the time, but he was so traumatized that he does not remember ever giving this interview. I don't understand how you could. They're literally in fucking shock. I don't understand treating these people as brutally cruel. Like, my fucking heart is breaking for the... Oh, my God. Okay. I I think you pronounce her name as Lonnie... But Lonnie DeRoe was Marbuck's partner at the time, and they weren't able to attend the trial, but they were informed, of course. So when the time came, they traveled together to Grafton for the verdict. She wrote the following in an inquiry of the family's response to the murders, and it says, quote, We were ushered into a room with high windows and looked up to see the journalists had climbed up to get to the windows with their cameras to get footage of the grieving family. There was no sensitivity or respect shown to the family, end quote. The media actually climbed up the side of the building to get their footage while this devastated family is doing their best to process what the hell just happened. I just don't understand this. Like, that is sick. That is, that is, mm. okay, so the prosecutors tried Jay for Clinton's murder first because of the physical evidence, but now that Jay Hart had been found not guilty, They dropped the charges against him for Evelyn's murder, meaning that Jay was now a free man because they had no physical evidence from Evelyn's murder. That moment just now was definitely, for sure, 1,000%. The closest, the closest I have ever came to taking my headphones off 
setting them on this microphone, and going to fucking bed. I'm not going to lie, you guys. Y'all almost just did not have a rest of this episode. That was the closest moment I've ever had to just getting the fuck up and being like, I'm sorry, can't do it. I can't do this. Most people would just assume that was the end of it, but these families refused to accept the outcome, and rightfully so. Their children had been murdered, and if the police hadn't grossly mishandled the physical evidence, delayed investigations, and done all of their bullshit, then Jay never would have gotten away with it. Material evidence that the police were responsible for literally disappeared. Other evidence given to the police by the community members wasn't even used in court. And don't even get me started on the fucking evidence they let Jay walk into his fucking caravan and then take. Yeah, and not to mention that, but the homicide squad was never even called. This is... I'm having a really hard time. I'm having a hard time with this one. I just, I don't even know. I am, I'm just trying to self-soothe right now a little bit. I am, I cannot explain the anger and, and the heartbreak that I feel for these families. I absolutely could not fucking imagine ever going through anything like this. It was known that Jay and his family came from what we call old money. And it is still believed that his influence and connections, not to mention being a white man with money, played a part in his outcome. In late 1996, early 1997, Strike Force, I think it's ANCUD, A-N-C-U-D, was formed and they were tasked with reinvestigating the murders and was primarily led by Detective Sergeant Gary Jubilin, who is a prominent figure and a big name in Australian law enforcement. He was involved in some very high-profile cases, including the search for William Tyrell and the death of Matthew Levison. But in 1996, Gary Jubilin had over 10 years of experience in homicide investigations. And he said that when he arrived in Bowerville, he was basically a big city homicide detective brought into an environment that he was not accustomed to, and he had a lot to learn. Initially, when the families of Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton told him that the reason their children's murders weren't solved was because they were aboriginal. He didn't believe them. But I can tell you that his feelings on that definitely changed. Um, at an inquiry in 2014, Gary Jubilin made a statement saying, quote, It is difficult to imagine how the families must feel, having no faith or trust in the authorities who were there to protect them, while at the same time, knowing the authorities are the only people that can help them get justice and closure. I have been asked so often by the families whether this matter would be handled the same way if it were three white children from a wealthy suburb in Sydney who were murdered. I cannot with a clear conscience say it would be. This is an uncomfortable truth which I feel should be accepted, end quote. With the strike force now put together, the NSW police seem to have intentions of wanting to do things differently this time. The task force actually had detectives that were experienced in homicide and major crimes with nobody being involved from the Child Protection Department. They also didn't allow any local police from Bowerville to be on the strike force either. So everyone in this unit were also given cultural awareness and sensitivity training, and it was also made very clear and understood that the indigenous residents had a deep level of distrust toward law enforcement and should be treated with respect and honesty, which is how they should have been fucking treated in the first place. Absolutely agreed. 
Gary and the rest of the team really did everything in their power and worked hard to gain trust with the families, which made them more willing to speak with the members of the team. And even though the team originally went into this treating each case separately, through their investigation, they still came to the same conclusion that all three murders had been committed by one singular person and not three. They were dealing with a serial killer and all the information was leading them right back to Jay Hart. A big part of the reinvestigation was not only going over all of the original statements from witnesses, but also talking to new ones. One woman told the detectives that sometime between Colleen and Evelyn's disappearance, she woke in the middle of the night to find Jay standing at the foot of her bed. He had broken into her home and was in her bedroom. When he realized that she was awake, he fled. And when she was asked why she didn't tell the police in the original investigation, she felt that she wouldn't be believed. She felt that being an indigenous woman, who would believe that a white man had broken into her home during the night? Right, well, I mean, it's very fucking sad, but that's very valid. I mean, considering everything else we've talked about in this episode. It's a lot to take I'm in. I'm actually, like, progressively over, like, the, this whole episode, really, but really, like, the last hour, maybe 40 minutes, maybe, I'm genuinely having, like, a hard time breathing. Like, I'm, my chest is tightening with rage. Literal rage. Like, I am so devastated. And hollow. I just don't even know like what to say. I feel like I've I've hardly said anything this entire fucking episode. I just did not expect any of this and I am just fucking devastated. That's I was, all I know to say. I was very equally devastated putting this together. As I said, I have cried, I have thrown my phone, I have <laughs> you know been going I've through been it. going through it. But um Gary and the team then came across a massive lead in the form of an eyewitness account that should have been heard at Clinton's trial. The Crown prosecutors had never even been made aware of this account because the police who took the original statement never bothered following up on it. Imagine that. This statement became what is known as the Norco Corner Evidence. In 1991, after Clinton's story broke in the news that he was missing... Two delivery drivers reported that at around 5 a.m. that morning, they were passing a location known as Norco Corner, which is just 200 meters or around 600 feet from Jay's caravan. And they reported that they saw a young Aboriginal male, unconscious and barefoot, laying in the middle of the road. They almost ran him over. So they immediately pulled over and went to check on him, but they didn't even get the chance to check on him because they were approached by a tall, stocky white man who told them not to worry because he had already called the police and an ambulance was on the way. Like, basically trying to shoo them off and have them leave. Right. Reluctant, the drivers went on their way, but not before they noticed a reddish-orange car pulled over on the side of the road with the trunk wide open. Michael Scafidi, one of the drivers, said in an interview that he later recognized the man as Jay Hart. The man he saw that morning standing over that unconscious boy was the same man he saw on TV being ambushed by the media and being asked if he was the one who murdered those children in Bowerville. Michael's statements to the police during the original investigation was never brought to light in court, and this was very compelling evidence considering it coincided with the neighbor's statement about seeing Jay's mother's car leaving the property that morning. Right. 
The strike force surmised that after Jay murdered Clinton, he loaded his body into his mother's car and drove to Norco Corner to dump Clinton in the road in hopes that the body would be run over by someone to make it look like an accident. When the delivery drivers pulled over, Jay realized that plan wasn't going to work, so when the drivers left, he loaded Clinton back into the car and instead dumped him on Congarini Road. With all of this new information and fresh leads pointing to Jay Hart again, the team submitted their final report to the DPP, or the Director of Public Prosecutions, in March of 1998 that recommended the charges against Jay Hart be reinstated and that they begin the proceedings for Evelyn's murder also. It took 18 months for a decision to come back. DPP Mark McAdams reviewed the application and rejected it. He had also been previously involved in Clinton's trial three years prior, so side eye, side eye. This is fucking crazy. In 2004, another inquest was held and Evelyn's matter was referred to the DPP for Jay to be given an ex officio indictment for the murder of Evelyn. Basically, this would mean that despite the lack of physical evidence, he would still stand trial for her murder. Gotcha, gotcha. I was going to ask you what that meant. Good job. Yeah, yeah. I thought ahead. We learn something new every day on this podcast, it seems. So one of Jay's fellow inmates, whose anonymity will be respected by only referring to this person as Witness X, he took the stand at the inquiry and testified that Jay confided in him while awaiting trial. Jay told X that Clinton pulled a knife on him. Jay then overpowered Clinton and hit him in the head. Jay then wrapped his body in a blanket and dumped him in a marijuana patch. According to the story told to the media outlet named The Australian, he also confided to X that he had gotten really angry and smashed a young girl's head against a wall, and that there was also a 15, 16-year-old white girl, and the word Wolgulga had also come up, which was the town that Colleen was going to go to on the train. Right, right. You know, that wouldn't be something that X would have any information about or fully understand the significance of during his testimony. So February 7th, 2006, at Port Macquarie Supreme Court, the trial was underway for four-year-old Evelyn's murder in which Jay Hart, now 40 years old, once again pleaded not guilty. And somehow, it was yet again decided that the jury was not going to be allowed to hear evidence from either Colleen's or Clinton's murders in this trial. Then what's the fucking point? Why why are they not using this? Like, that is so enraging to me. The coroner's findings from the 2004 inquiry was the only time a judicial officer had ever heard evidence from all three crimes. After four weeks of hearing the evidence of all three murders, the NSW coroner, Mr. James Abernathy, stated in his findings, quote, Like the investigating police, I am of the opinion that the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of Colleen Walker and the murders of Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy have strikingly similar characteristics. The coincidence and tendency evidence suggests that Jay Hart was involved in the disappearances, end quote. The coroner then went on to detail no less than 11 similarities between the three cases that led him to this conclusion. So it's just wild to me that once again the jury isn't being given the full story or all the evidence yet again. And to make matters worse, 
The four fellow inmates that Jay confessed to while awaiting trial were also not going to be allowed to give their testimonies at Evelyn's trial. What the... F oh my... There was also no physical evidence against Jay regarding Evelyn's murder because the scene where Evelyn disappeared was never secured. It was never treated as a crime scene and it was never forensically tested. So the Crown Prosecutor literally told Detective Gary Jubilin going into the trial that there was no way they were going to win. Which is not something that anyone wants to hear right before the trial begins. So, once again, the trial came down to witness testimonies, and the witnesses were able to not only place Jay at the party, but also shed light into his strange behavior that night, including even fleeing from the room where Evelyn was sleeping. But the defense was quick to point out that these testimonies were foggy on the details, and considering it had been 15 years since her murder, and the witnesses had all been drinking that night. So, um... Yeah. That honestly just pisses me the fuck off. Really, truly, it does. I should also mention that there was an unspoken cultural barrier between the jury and the witnesses because the all-white jury didn't really understand the subtle gestures that were made and the nuances in communication of the aboriginal witnesses. Um, a report by Dr. Diana Eads from the University of New England highlights this, and she had personally traveled to Bowerville in 2005, and then she attended the trial in 2006. And according to this report, the witnesses' long pauses and lack of eye contact, which is common in Aboriginal communities, could have been interpreted by the jury as invasiveness. The jury was also confused when the witnesses would seemingly contradict themselves by first responding to a question with yes, and then going on to answer the question in the negative. So this is known as gratuitous concurrence, and it's a common social response used by Aboriginal English speakers that's actually a polite gesture to placate or soothe the person asking the questions to make them feel more comfortable. So, like, if I was to ask you a question, you would go, yes, and then, like, answer the question. So, basically, you're acknowledging that this person is asking you a question, and then you're answering the question. Well, right, apparently, right. apparently, the this all-white jury did not understand that. And during the initial investigations back in the 90s, the police obviously did not understand this either. Nor did they care to Exactly. As it clearly shows, it just fucking makes me so upset. So all of this confusion in the courtroom could have been avoided if the jury had received formal preparations on how to better understand the way communication is expressed by the indigenous witnesses. But instead, the judge told the jury at the beginning of the trial that the witnesses, quote, might have some problems in terms of understanding or expressing themselves, end quote. Which is such a negative connotation that has a twinge of the schism in there. A huge twinge of schism. And if you're confused with what that means, I'm talking about racism. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, it starts with race and ends with ism. And it's disgusting. Schism. But now this, this part really enraged me, okay? The testimony of the lady at the sweet shop on High Street that claims she saw Evelyn the morning of her disappearance. And I'm going to tell you now, it is absolute bullshit. And her testimony, of course, went over better with the jury than with other witnesses. 
So she claimed that she had seen Evelyn in her shop in the company of four young boys that the shop owner supposedly confirmed they had all been with Evelyn that morning. All four of these boys also confirmed and said that they had been with Evelyn in the sweet shop. However, during the reinvestigation by the strike force, it was confirmed by the children's home where all four of these boys lived that none of them had been in Bowerville at that day on that time at all. And all the other witnesses that had placed Evelyn in town that morning also told the strike force that now they weren't so sure it was Evelyn. Or the strike force eventually found out that some of these witnesses also hadn't been in Bowerville on the morning in question. However, at the trial, the sweet shop lady was very adamant that it was Evelyn. And Jay's defense lawyer told the jury to treat her testimony as a beacon of light to guide their decision-making process. So when Witness X was brought into trial to give his testimony, the defense lawyer asked why the jury should believe him when he's lied to other juries before. Mind you, there was nothing to gain here by lying. There was no deals made for any of the inmates willing to testify. And there's like, uh, let's not forget that the other inmates that Jay confessed to weren't even given the chance to testify. So the jury would only hear Witness X's testimony, but it was shot down immediately. God fucking damn it. Another man that testified had actually been a friend of Jay's previously, and he told the jury that one night they were drinking, and Jay told him that he had had a couple of bodies up by his marijuana patch along Congarini Road. Oh. And this lined up with where the victim's bodies and belongings had been found. But Jay's lawyer dismissed the witness, saying he was an alcoholic who couldn't be trusted, and he had taken too long to come forward. It's like mind blowing to me that in any authority figure in this case can say anything about not fucking coming forward and doing anything in time. That blows my fucking mind, honestly, like blown. I could jump out of the fucking window right now onto my fucking face. Not onto your face, baby. We got it. No, that's the money maker. We can't. <laughs> <laughs> like I no. am. But um, Jay never testified in his defense because his lawyers told him there was no need to. It took the jury less than a day in deliberation before finding Jay not guilty for the murder of Evelyn Greenup on March 3rd, 2006. Both trials were, in my opinion, fixed and failed to deliver justice to the families. The families were told to move on. Both trials had failed and without Colleen's body, there was zero chances left to catch the children's killer. The families were told that if they were still struggling with their loss, then they should look into grief counseling. Get the fuck at... It's just, I'm not going to lie. Can we, like... Sorry, guys. Can we stop the recording just for a second and then come back after... Like, you guys aren't going to hear the break, but can we stop this for a second? I literally need to stop this for a second. Okay. Like, I'm saying that I need to stop. Okay, you guys aren't going to hear the break, but we'll be back in one second. Please stand by while we lose our shit. The show will resume momentarily. So, hi guys. Yeah, totally sorry about that. I'm physically holding my shit together and I just had to walk away, hit my vape, like put everything down. I just had to go like, I'm sorry. 
I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever happened in this show. Congratulations. You made me get the fuck up out of my chair and walk off. Great. <laughs> not, not even a fluff fact. Just let me get the fuck out of here for a minute. Literally. But um, even Detective Jubilin believed that this was their last chance and now there was nowhere left to go from here. But these amazing, resilient, and incredibly strong families were not done. And they would not give up so easily. They knew who had murdered their children and they refused to let him go free. With each generation that has been born to these families, the younger members of their families would continue the fight for justice for family members that they've never met. Because they too feel the loss and grief surrounding Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton. They fought to literally change the law itself specifically the law of double jeopardy in NSW. And this law states that a person who has been found innocent for a crime cannot be tried again for that crime unless the police get another conviction. Supposedly, it exists to ensure that the individual isn't unfairly harassed and repeatedly prosecuted after they've been acquitted. And sure, this is supposed to help innocent people who might have been wrongly accused, but the complete opposite had occurred here. The double jeopardy law was now protecting a serial rapist and killer because the legal system had so badly failed these families by showing little to no interest at all in pursuing justice. So the families came together and campaigned, demonstrated, and protested, and they spoke with politicians, they spoke with the media, they marched in front of the Parliament House all the while calling for action and changes to be made to the NSW double jeopardy law. And these complete badasses actually succeeded. Whoa. So in December of 2006, legislative changes heavily influenced by the murders of Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton were introduced to the Crimes and Appeal Review Act of 2001, allowing the NSW Court of Criminal Appeals to order an acquitted person to be retried if there is fresh and compelling evidence against them, which was great news for the families because that meant Jay could indeed be retried for the murders. This unimaginable huge victory was then followed by a very messy and confusing drawn-out battle of navigation through the system's red tape. And meanwhile, this battle has been filled with moments of hope and triumph, as well as devastating losses and setbacks. Following the change of the laws in 2006, the Strike Force team compiled a submission to the DPP with what they deemed to be fresh and compelling evidence against Jay. Months later, they received a one-page response from the DPP stating that the evidence, in their opinion, was not fresh or compelling enough to warrant an application for a retrial. Oh, fucking course. So not even the Norco Corner evidence. So the DPP claimed that, sure, it was fresh because it had never been heard in court, but it wasn't compelling. Like, what the fuck, fuck do, do you, you mean? mean? You literally have eyewitnesses that caught Jay in the act of trying to cover up Clinton's murder as an accident. And this is also the point where my poor iPhone took another unexpected flight <laughs> to the other side of the room. <laughs> so... With the help of independent legal counsel, the families made two separate requests to two separate attorney generals asking them to apply for a retrial. Both of these requests were rejected, first in 2010 and then in 2013. The 2013 refusal basically comes down to arguments about the legal terms 
of fresh and compelling evidence. So in 2014, there was an NSW parliamentary inquiry held at the Parliament House in Sydney, which was another huge triumph for the families because no one ever thought that this would happen. So at the inquiry, about 30 of the victim's family members were able to present their case for a retrial to the Committee for Law and Justice, while being joined by Detective Gary Jubelin and other members of the government and community that supported their cause. So these families were able to tell the committee about their loss, their grief, and their fight for justice, which at this point had been going on for the past 20 years. So when presented with literally everything that this family has been through, the trials, the evidence, the witnesses, everything that happened, the committee completed their first final report in November of 2014. The committee found that the families had been failed by the system and the original investigation had indeed been flawed. The committee called for the NSW police to review and update their policies and programs relating to Aboriginal people when necessary to ensure best cultural practices, further stating that lawyers and judicial staff in the NSW Department of Justice should also be required to take part in this training. And when it came to the murders of Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton, the committee agreed with what the families have been saying this entire time, that all the evidence from all three cases needed to be heard at the same time in the same court of law. Right. So the NSW government was given six months to respond and act on the committee's recommendations. But the final decision of whether all three cases would finally be heard together in court came down to the NSW Court of Criminal Appeal. So in May 2016, the first application for a retrial under the new double jeopardy laws was made by Ga Gabrielle Upton, excuse me, who was at the time the NSW Attorney General. And she decided that it was in the public's and the family's best interest that there be no more delays in bringing the matter back to court. So there was a hearing held in November of 2017 at the Criminal Court of Appeals where the fresh and compelling evidence against Jay was surrounding Colleen's case, which has never been heard in court. Well, Jay's defense team responded by saying that it wasn't fresh evidence because even though Colleen's case hadn't been heard in court, it could have been heard before. So despite what the, the fuck kind of argument is that? Right. Like, even though it wasn't heard in court, it could have been heard before. That's so fucking stupid. I would... Following the six-day hearing, the Criminal Court of Appeals took almost a year to hand down their unanimous decision in September of 2018. The application for Jay Hart to be tried for all three murders in one trial had been dismissed, once again leaving the family with absolutely nowhere to go from here. The families were left feeling completely devastated, heartbroken, and angry. For the first time in Australian history, the NSW Attorney General made an application to the High Court for special leave to appeal the Criminal Court of Appeals decision, which was obviously a very big deal because the Attorney General was literally challenging their decision. And this had never happened before. However, the High Court upheld the decision by the Criminal Court of Appeals. In 2019, Greens Federal MP David Shoebridge, who was a huge advocate for the families, lobbied for changes to be made to the double jeopardy laws again in hopes of making it easier to get Jay Hart to be retried for his crimes. Also in 2019, the much-loved detective Gary Jubelin 
retired from the NSW police after 34 years on the job under immense controversy as he faced multiple charges of criminal misconduct. He was found to be guilty of illegally recording a conversation with a person of interest in the William Tyrell case. Wow, gotcha. So it's believed that he had a target on his back when he openly and publicly admitted that racism played a huge part in how the original investigation was carried out by the NSW police. Sarah also included in her email to us that apparently Gary brought a lot of corruption of the NSW police to light and the force held a grudge against him. He was even called the Abo Lover which is just racist and downright disgusting and disgraceful. As of this year, a senior NSW police officer has rejected suggestions that racism is rife within its ranks and has told a federal inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and children that lessons have been learned after the Bowerville murders. Well, I would certainly fucking hope so because it is absolutely unacceptable and appalling that these families were even treated like this in the first place. Yeah, I, the amount of heartbreak that I feel is 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 indescribable. I could not imagine what these poor families have had to endure over so long. I just simply couldn't imagine. Jay Hart is now known under a different name and is now living in an undisclosed location, no longer in Bowerville. But he is believed to be living in a different area of New South Wales. According to Jay himself, he said in an interview before he changed his identity that he is, and I quote, just as much a victim of this as the families are, end quote. Bullshit. Then he continued on to talk about how his life has been ruined. He openly stated that a small part of him wishes all three cases could be heard in the same trial so he could once and for all prove his innocence. But he worries about court costs and the impact it would have on his family. Like, excuse me, but um, what about the families of, of the, the children that you fucking killed? Well, not only the children that he killed, but the women and the girls that he sexually assaulted. Right. Like, right. what about all of these families? Clinton and Colleen would have been in their late 40s. Evelyn would have been in her mid to late 30s if they were still here. Colleen probably would have followed her dream to become a teacher. Clinton might have ended up in sports. But Evelyn, like, she never got the chance to even dream about her future. What about the families these three kids would have gone on to have that now their families will never have the chance to meet, love, or grow with because this absolutely disgusting piece of shit snatched all those opportunities away from them. But his life is hard. And his life is ruined, and he's a victim. Like, I could literally fucking puke. So let's instead hear what Gary Jubilin said during the 2014 inquiry. Quote, Unless you have a full understanding of what the families and community have had to endure over the last 22 years, it is difficult to have an appreciation of their suffering. I have observed their pain since 1997, and it is very sad and raw. They have had to deal with the brutal murders of their children, Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton. Three kids from the same community living in the same street murdered over a five-month period and no one has been called into account. These matters should have been solved. They have even had to suffer the indignity of being judged on their lifestyles, a lot of which is based on ignorance and lack of understanding. 
It needs to be recognized that the person who murdered these children is a predator who targeted a vulnerable community and assisted in creating an environment in which these crimes could occur. The children and the families are the victims, end quote. So after 30 years, no one has been convicted of the murders. The families continue to fight to make sure their children are never forgotten. For a very long time, the families believe there are people in Bowerville who may know more, but they haven't come forward for whatever reason. So the need for information has become more urgent now because since so much time has passed, it's possible that anyone that lived in Bowerville during the time of the murders, either their memories have faded or people have grown older or possibly died. A $3 million reward is being offered for anyone with information in are encouraged to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000 or visit crimestoppers.com.au. It doesn't matter how long it's been or why you haven't come forward. You can report information and remain anonymous as well. There is a chance that the information you may have could be the fresh and compelling evidence they need to finally put an end to this madness. My heart goes out to the families of Colleen, Evelyn, and Clinton, and I sincerely hope that the monster responsible is finally brought to justice so the families can someday start their healing journey towards finding peace. And that concludes my story about the three children that were murdered in Bowerville. And it almost, almost concluded my time as a host on this podcast. <laughs> Listen, out of all of the trials that we have been through th throughout the past 24 to 48 hours. It has been insane. It, it has been a very trying time. And we even, we were like, you know what? There's about to not be an episode because. <laughs> no. Nah. We, we would never do that. Oh, no. We would totally never do that to you guys. We love doing this show. We're just bitching. Just bitching. Just a little bit. But, Sarah, honestly, like, thank you for bringing this to our attention because even though this is so gut-wrenchingly hard to listen to, it needed to be heard. Right. And I, I also want to jump on that wagon and say thank you. I know I said it, like, earlier in the episode, but now that we're at the end and I have fully absorbed everything... This is not a case that I had heard of ever, and it blows my fucking mind. Um, but this absolutely impacted me in a way that I cannot describe. It has moved me in a way that I cannot describe, and it has absolutely broken my soul, snatched it in a pretzel knot through my asshole, and <laughs> ripped it through all layers of my skin and muscle. It has absolutely devastated me. So I also want to give the thanks uh, for you even taking the time to email us to tell us about this uh thank you so much for listening to the show and if there's any feedback that i have because i think throughout i think i made it pretty clear <laughs> how i felt going <laughs> we don't need to we don't need to know how gage feels gage has made it clear how he feels gage made it very clear how he feels but i do want to say like with my entire heart that you know to the to people that these crimes have affected to these beautiful families i am so horribly sorry for your loss i'm sorry for the lives that we will never know of these three beautiful children and we will never know of the great things they would have gone on to do this just absolutely breaks my heart and my condolences and all of the good things i'm wishing to all of you and i sincerely hope with my entire being 
that someday justice will be given to these children because I just, this has absolutely, I mean, I'm not saying this necessarily in a bad way because I'm glad that I know about it, but like, bitch, you fucked up like the rest of our night. You know that, right? <laughs> it's Like, there is no chilling after this. No, like, it's me, straight we're, to bed. We're about to go lay down, put on something really fucking sad, and then we're going to go to sleep and cry. No, I'm just going to put on my, like, background aquarium. <laughs> I'm going to go to sleep and fucking cry. <laughs> <laughs> I should also mention that um, there is one picture that we're going to put up on our social medias where you see, um, you see like, some banners that has the children on it, and it says, say their name on it. From what I understand, I believe that was just last year put up in Bowerville where the families are still continuing to put up banners and to make people aware of this case. Goodness um, gracious, the way are, these people have fought, I just oh yeah, my they God. are they are still fighting to this day for any type of recourse when it comes to this. And you know, I I think that it's very telling that this guy would like go and change his name and go live in a different like right. I just I honestly I do not have the capacity. To even start, <laughs> like to even start it on that, like I, I truly don't. Um, I did see something where I guess um, the the Aboriginal community. I, I read on a website where they had gathered up and like gone to Jay's mom's house and like spray paint spray painted "killer" like across. You know, like there was, there was a there was like a big a big 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 deal, and I think it ran this guy out of town. Which I mean, good, but also like at the same instance, have we now like kind of lost our tabs on him to finally, right? You know right. what I mean? Because if I mean, if he went and legally changed his name, and it's not just an assumed name, then the court system should have like records of that you right, would think right but right i just then again uh, if you're running from murders you you know might not do that legally so <laughs> you make a good point well listen we we've made it to the end of this we're all here at the end suffering and 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 horribly mangled or at least i know i am so we are going to go ahead and close everything out today you guys if you would like to follow ray and i and all of our well great news you can totally do that you can find us on facebook at gore report a true crime podcast on instagram at gore report podcast on our patreon www.patreon.com slash gore report podcast or, guys, if you just want to send us an email to say hi, hello, or give us a case request, you can do that at goreportpod at gmail.com. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, this was fucking horrible. <laughs> this was fucking horrible. I don't um, even Sarah, know. Sarah, you're done. Uh, Sarah. <laughs> you're, Sarah, you're done. You got some explaining to do. You're done. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, uh, thank you. Yeah, seriously, like you're done, but like thank you. You're done, but thank you. And you're done. <laughs> and you're done. So uh, on that note, we're going to go. And uh, if you're a racist, fuck you. Fuck you. And until next time. Bye. bye.